0: Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of Chatting Change. I'm your host, Charlie Ashby. This week, I was joined by our guest, Eric Geller, who is a cybersecurity reporter at Politico. Hi, Eric, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. No, it's great to have you on. You're our first uh, international guest.
1: (laughs) Oh, well, I'm happy to have that honor. Exactly. Yeah. Um,
0: So how have you been recently? Everything good?
1: Yeah, uh, I've been working a lot on uh, our coverage of election security and uh, how we're getting ready for the 2020 presidential election here in the United States. Uh, so it's been keeping me pretty busy. Yeah, cause I,
0: I, it just it seems so strange. It seems like yesterday it was the uh, ramp up to the 2016 election.
1: Yeah, and, and look at how time flies. And now here we are planning for 2020 and trying to learn lessons from our midterm elections last year. And uh, it's keeping me busy. I'm, I've got a lot to write about.
0: Well, it's very interesting, and um, I think we should just sort of dive into the questions because uh, there's so much to talk about regarding cyber. Um, And I guess the sort of for people that don't know too much about what you write about, my first question would be: uh, What is (laughs) cybersecurity?
1: Well, cybersecurity is uh, the way that we protect. Uh, the devices in our lives and the data that they store and transmit uh, from winding up in the wrong hands and, and being used in uh, inappropriate ways. That's sort of the simplest way I can think to describe it.
0: And this, I think one of the interesting things we have to sort of discuss as well is that the fact that as a sort of like companies and um, governments around the world get to grips with uh, technologies and new technologies, cybersecurity is becoming quite a big threat for them as well, right? Yeah,
1: I mean, it's become a tool of statecraft. It's become uh, something that nation states use to try to achieve their their goals, and and that's not something that um, as what used to be as prevalent, frankly, in the early days of uh, of hacking and and cyber security threats. Uh, it was uh, it was mischief makers, and and there were uh, early examples of governments using these tools, but uh, certainly not in any sort of sustained, sophisticated way
0: like what we're seeing today. I guess the more we become, techn- technologically capable, the more uh, people with less, not not so great intent are as well, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's not a tool that you can restrict to the good guys. And so you need to be prepared for when the bad guys use it.
0: So one of the things we do at Societal Enlist is um, talk about like supply chains and logistics. Um, are cyber threats becoming an increasing problem to supply chains? Yeah, it's uh, it's
1: really a, a combination of the the increasing sophistication of technology and the increasing uh, globalization of uh, production and distribution. Um, I think the best example is uh, in the in. Uh, the, the WannaCry and NotPetya malware attacks that happened—oh uh, uh, gosh, was it already two years ago? That's pretty—that's <laughs> pretty wild. Um, you know, one of the things that that we've seen as a result of some of these malware attacks is when they spread uncontrollably, they can have unintended consequences. And in in the case of the NotPetya attack, what you saw was. Uh, the global shipping giant uh, Maersk uh, was unable to move cargo through some of its facilities because the computers that controlled the distribution of the different cargo containers and, you know, the, the computers have to talk to the ships when they come into the port. They've got to, you know, learn from the ships what they're carrying and where each of those containers is supposed to go. Well, this ransomware was not intended to, to attack Maersk, but it did. It, it destroyed their entire computer network, basically, and uh, that that prevented them, in large part, from being able to move cargo through some of these facilities. There were massive lines of trucks waiting to get into some of these ports because the computers that were at the entry points were not working. And, and, and you know, you actually had companies saying, you know, calling their drivers while the drivers were, you know, in line waiting to get into the port and saying, it's a security threat for your truck to be sitting there where somebody could try to hijack it. Come back to the facility. We're not getting in today. Um, and this was all because of a, a piece of code that was written somewhere, distributed for some purpose, and then got out of hand and, and spread uncontrollably, essentially. And uh, there's a fascinating story in, uh, in Wired, uh, wired.com, if, if anybody wants to Google it, um, to learn basically how Maersk was able to resume operations um, and how in the interim, they had to do a lot of things with pen and paper. It really makes you think about how much we've digitized and how many of those things are in the background of our lives at all times. You know, I'm talking to you right now on a microphone that I bought on Amazon. This microphone was built somewhere. Uh, it was designed somewhere. Uh, the people who built it were hired by a company. They were given permission to go into a factory and build this thing. Well, what happens if through a a cyber threat or another type of threat, you can compromise that supply chain of producers and distributors and essentially infect it and put something in that process that has ripple effects throughout the entire process and, and you could imagine the consequences of that, not just for a microphone, but for uh, telecommunications equipment. That's a big conversation that we're having in the United States right now. And I know that uh, many of the, of the other Western countries that are getting ready to build their 5G wireless networks are also having these conversations about what kind of companies do they want to permit to
0: help them build these networks. I mean, yeah, not long ago, the Apple FaceTime uh, bug popped up, which was a sort of a big problem like just anyone could have listened to any of your conversations
1: yeah that's another great example and and in that case it was not uh a, a hacker introducing um a deliberate uh vulnerability in the code at least not as far as we know it was somebody who was people were responsible for designing uh facetime and they made a mistake and that was exploitable and it was exploited. Um, And yeah, that's another great example of the other kind of supply chain vulnerability, which is just a mistake somewhere in the process that anybody can exploit. It's not that somebody has written a special piece of code, um, but it's that there's a, a simple vulnerability out there that people can take advantage of as long as they know where it is.
0: Yeah, I suppose, like you said, with all these examples, of either mistakes or obviously like a code that might have got out of hand, not necessarily targeted like a company in supply chains. But once these news stories get out there and people learn about it, I suppose other governments or perhaps just other individuals, rival companies could learn from those attempts and are now actively looking to do that themselves.
1: Yeah, everybody learns from everybody else and, and people look at what's successful and what's not successful. Uh, I think you are going to see a, a greater focus on supply chain security in countries like the United States that are highly vulnerable to attacks on our critical infrastructure or attacks on our manufacturing sector. Um, you know, we have uh, people here whose job it is to think about what could go wrong and, and how to prevent that.
0: We were just talking last week actually in this podcast about disruptive technology and how there's a lot of businesses certainly in the UK that still haven't got to grips with the fact that we're moving from pen and paper to technology and how they haven't really thought about these issues. Do you reckon that's a problem for now and will it change rapidly or we'll have to wait a few years?
1: I think it could be one of those things where, you know, the the more, uh, the longer you kind of drag your feet in preparing for that transition, uh, the the more vulnerable you are to being labeled, you know, retrograde. Um, and as everybody starts to digitize these processes, that's going to become, and in fact, it already is, a selling point. Um, if you can show that you're taking this this new world of technology seriously and you're 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 embracing it and you're improving your efficiency by moving to uh, moving to to digital activities for kind of some of these analog processes right now, that's going to become a selling point. And I think that's only going to increase the pressure. On companies to do that, whereas if they if it wasn't a competitive advantage, perhaps they'd be able to proceed in a more deliberate way, um, and that's also how you get some vulnerabilities, right? It, people people trying to move to uh, to digital solutions without necessarily thinking about the vulnerabilities that that are being introduced when you do it in a haphazard way.
0: Yeah, and I suppose, like we mentioned before, with the supply chains, I, I guess nobody really thinks about the repercussions of these actions they might actively go out to um take down one computer but if one computer is, is a system computer and then you get trucks that can't get in on time and then you've got sort of like perhaps it is medical supplies and the medical supplies can't get into somewhere that you're effectively like messing with someone's life right yeah we're living in a world where it's a lot easier than it's ever
1: been to cause widespread damage without intending to. It used to be very difficult to do that. Um, You know, if you um, wanted to detonate a bomb, you know, you would choose where you were going to be when that bomb went off. Now, if something goes wrong with the bomb while you're, you know, going to that location, then certainly, you know, you you could end up blowing up a building you didn't intend to. But, you know, you, you sort of get the idea there. When it's a physical bomb, and you can see you can see the bomb, you can see if it's gone off or not, and you can see the effects of the surrounding, you know, the blast radius. It's very easy to see that with your own eyes, and you don't need any special skills to sort of understand that kind of path from point A to point B. But with cyber weapons and 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 computer code, um, it moves. Fa- First of all, it moves faster than the human brain is capable of comprehending because it's not limited by human mobility anymore. And second of all, the pathways that it can travel along are not, uh, they, again, they escape our comprehensibility because we can't picture in our head the shape of the internet. And that's why it's so difficult to know the effect of a piece of computer code uh, when you deploy it, or when you accidentally let it get deployed. Um, You know, that that was the problem with the WannaCry malware in in May of 2017. It was not intentional, most experts think, to have that released at that time. But it doesn't matter. I mean, you, you know, somebody could steal a bomb from your bomb making plant. But again, you would be able to know that that happened much more easily. Uh, A bomb can't walk out of, of that bomb making plant. But if you write the computer code in a certain way, if you're not careful, that code can get out there. And it's obviously not invisible. There are ways to see it. But to the sort of, to the naked eye, to the, to the average person whose job it is to think about these things, it's not readily apparent where that code is in the world. And so, yeah, you do get a lot of problems that just stem from the fact that we're, we're dealing with a different type of adversary and we're dealing with a different type of weapon.
0: It's, yeah, it's kind of, it's hard to get your brain around it sometimes. Like, like you said, so the computer codes work so fast, um, faster than the human mind can comprehend. So And while there are jobs, like you said, for people out there to predict these potential threats, what can companies do to protect themselves against this? The best
1: thing that you can do is the suite of easy things that every computer expert will tell you to do. Um, Maersk was not targeted by some advanced computer weapon that you know, got through all their defenses and, you know, was some super secret, you know, James uh, James Bond type weapon. Um, they didn't patch their computers and they stored, you know, they, they didn't use multi-factor authentication. So if you got their passwords, uh, you would be able to get into those systems uh, without anything else. Um, that, that's not industry standard cybersecurity practices. Um, industry standard is Patch your computers so that if there's a, a piece of malware out there that relies on a, a vulnerability, um, and the company has already patched that vulnerability, um, then you've got that patch on your system. You're secure. And of course, use multi-factor authentication because then uh, malware that you know there there are pieces of code whose entire job is to just locate the directory of passwords in a computer network. Um, and, and use them and, and plug them in everywhere. And, and some of them will work in certain places. And then eventually, one of them turns out to be an administrator password, and then you have massive, widespread access to that system. Well, if you also need a, a token or, or, or a code or something like that that's generated by an app or perhaps generated by a physical key that you have in your pocket, just having the password will do nothing for the malware. So you can sort of imagine how many of these doors Maersk could have closed if it had just been practicing you know, industry standard cybersecurity. Um, it's really that easy for a lot of these attacks. Now, now when you're dealing with a, a foreign government that wants to specifically hack into you, um, they're going to do reconnaissance. They're going to learn about you. Um, they may have a piece of code that exploits an unknown vulnerability, uh, something that has not been patched yet. So uh, the the malware I've been talking about, um, one of the reasons it was able to spread so quickly is because it used a flaw in uh, in Microsoft Windows uh, in the way that Windows handles networking and uh, communications between computers on a network. Uh, Microsoft had actually patched that flaw several months earlier and... Um, but not everybody had applied the patch. And so you can imagine how devastating that would be if your computers were not patched. But that is sort of the that is the best case scenario when the malware is using a, a vulnerability or it, it exploiting a vulnerability that you could have patched if you wanted to. But if you're being targeted by a foreign government, uh, if the Russian government wants to hack into your computer system, It's possible, although not by no means guaranteed, but it's possible that they know about a vulnerability that that may very well be in the computers that you're using uh, that has not been fixed yet. And obviously, unless you can predict the future or read people's minds, uh, it's very difficult to defend against that. Uh, so that's really that's really one important component is make sure that your digital defenses are strong. But there's a second major component, Charlie, that is just as important, if not more important, and that is training your employees to be smart computer users. Uh, train them not to click on links that they don't recognize. Train them to step back. If they get an email that says, your invoice is late, you need to you know download this invoice and submit it or your boss is going to be really mad at you. Step back. Think about whether that's real check the email address, look back at your weekly schedule. Did you actually need to fill out an invoice? Think about what you're downloading before you download it, because in a lot of cases, that is how the infection starts. That's how the malware actually gets in. Um, It's obviously very important to worry about what the malware can do once it gets in, but it's more important really to worry about how the malware could possibly get in. and That is the biggest way. It's spear phishing. It's emails. Designed to trick people by playing on their fears, their their professional insecurities, um, and that's what you need to be most concerned about is: are your employees smart enough to to detect that kind of thing?
0: That's really interesting. I didn't really think about that before, like the whole education uh, section of that. It really should be an important part of companies, I think, because, like you said, like even just normal people get those emails every day. Um, I can't if I if I had a penny for every um foreign prince that had won the lottery, <laughs> I think we would all be very rich right now. Um
1: yeah, and and that's a great example of a scam that has evolved over time to become both more sophisticated and also more dangerous. Um, you know, if you sent somebody in Nigeria five thousand dollars, you know, they've got your you know, they've got your money, but they can't really do anything else to you at that point. They could try to trick you again. But just having your money doesn't actually give them anything beyond your money. But now, if you download a PDF and it has malware in it, and you open it, um, you're not the only one who's suffering. Everybody on your computer network is now vulnerable because the malware can move across the network and get onto their computers and produce you know, devastating consequences if you happen to work for a giant shipping company. Uh, so, yeah, we're seeing attacks that are much more dangerous now, and that's why it's much more important than it's ever been for the average computer user, the average corporate worker, to understand, at least at a basic level, what kind of threats are out there and what form those threats often
0: take. Interesting. Um, a lot of your work is about sort of like the election process, and obviously in America, it's much different to the U.K., Um Let's just focus on the U.S. for a moment. Um, How is cyber, how are are people using cyber attacking uh, U.S. democracy? Well, there's a a sort of bifurcated structure.
1: You have actual cyber attacks. Um, uh, For example, uh, there was a spear phishing attack that resulted in the theft of emails from the Democratic National Committee, which is one of the two organizations uh, associated with our major political parties, Um, There was a similar spear phishing attack that resulted in the theft of the emails from the leader of our Democratic presidential candidates uh, campaign back in 2016. Those were highly influential as far as uh, the the last few months of that campaign. Um, The emails were basically devastating to that candidate. So that's one of the two ways that you can see this happening, right, is a direct cyber attack. Um, In that case, it was a cyber attack on the campaign infrastructure Um, both the party organization and then the actual staff working for the candidate. But you could also imagine a cyber attack on the election infrastructure. And what I mean by that is the campaign infrastructure is the political apparatus that people use to run for office. The election infrastructure is the nonpartisan machinery that people use to actually vote and to store voter information. So you can imagine a cyber attack on a voter registration database that changes every third registrant so that that information is wrong. And by the way, next time you try to go and vote, your information is no longer in the database, so you can't vote because you're being told that you're not there. You have to fill out a provisional ballot. You can imagine hackers really trying to mess things up that way. And, you know, that's just, you know, that's theoretical right now. We haven't actually seen hackers tamper with voter registration data, but there was one state in the United States in 2016 where it was confirmed that hackers were able to access that information. Um, if you ask cybersecurity experts and national security experts what they're most worried about when it comes to that type of attack, they say it's not just the theft of the data, it's changing the data because that calls into question the validity of the process. People start to wonder what's real and what's not. So there are all kinds of ways in which you can really do a lot of damage by these direct cyber attacks. That That's part one. Part two is misinformation. And this is less about using computer code and vulnerabilities. This is more about playing on our own vulnerabilities, right? So not exploiting a flaw in a computer, but exploiting a flaw in a human being, posting information that's not true or that's partially untrue to rile them up um, make them think something that's not true about a particular candidate, and hopefully get them to vote in a certain way. And you can imagine how devastating this could be. Um, there, there's a lot of evidence that it is it, a large part of, of how things worked out in 2016 is because people were inflamed by these uh, these posts on social media, many of them associated with the Russian government. Uh, that's kind of an easier way to do it. You don't have to pay sophisticated hackers who – can find computer vulnerabilities which in a lot of cases there are very few of them because computer companies are getting a lot better at designing these systems instead all you have to do is play on the very obvious and very long-standing partisan divides in a democracy start tricking people uh, getting them to attend rallies that you know gets the blood pumping and all that kind of stuff this is not difficult to do it's not expensive it's You can do it in a fairly invisible way, although I should say that we're getting a little bit better at detecting these things, but we're still not very good. Uh, That's really the thing that I think most democracies have to worry more about because it's not expensive or difficult. In fact, it's very easy when you look at how kind of uh, uh, inflamed our societies already are. I mean, it's a boiling cauldron, and all you have to do is kind of shake it up a little bit more, and it's... Very possible that that can work out to your advantage if you're a, a foreign government that wants to mess with this
0: process. Yeah, I was about to say, like, we had the similar thing with the UK with the whole Brexit stuff and the um, Cambridge Analytica um, supposed information that apparently was posted out by Vote Leave and paid for. And obviously, we know the outcome of that um, result as well.
1: Yeah, and Russia has been very active in the UK, just as it has been in other Western democracies, in trying to uh, sow chaos, undermine uh, candidates who are pushing for a kind of more unified, uh, pan-European approach. Um, you know, you saw in in twenty sixteen in the United States, the Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton was much more in favor of maintaining traditional alliances. That was obviously a threat to the Russian government if the if the West was able to actually get, you know, get together, get form some sort of agreement about how to deal with a resurgent Russia. Uh, Brexit, obviously, according to most political analysts, will help the Russian government by undermining European unity. And so it's, it's, entirely obvious why they would want to sort of test out that strategy. And in fact, they did test out that strategy with the Brexit campaign. They used a lot of the same techniques to try to create divisions that would make people see this as an us versus them situation. And of course, they used those same techniques later later that year, I believe, if not the next year uh, with the 2016 presidential election here in the U.S.
0: Yeah, maybe like an early test run for that same year yeah. <laughs> to see how that would how that would pan out. I think it's kind of interesting um, how we're discussing. Obviously, like you're a cyber expert, we're discussing cyber, but one of the biggest threats are people. Yes. Well, again, this is why it's such a difficult
1: uh, area to. I don't want to say solve, but it's this is why it's so difficult to make progress with cybersecurity. And the, I hate this term, but I'm going to use it anyway because it's widespread. Cyber hygiene, um, it is about hygiene. It is about common sense, human decision making. If the only problem with cybersecurity were computer code, we would never be perfect. But we would. I mean, look, you know, you you let loose some talented computer geeks, and they can find a lot of flaws and fix them. Microsoft Windows is a fi- all things considered a fairly secure operating system. In relative terms, it's pretty darn secure. But once you start giving it to human beings and trusting them to use it properly, you the level of vulnerability increases substantially because humans are unpredictable. And if you can trick a human being, you can get past some of the defenses that are actually in the computer code. And so, yeah, I mean, I think people tend to think about cybersecurity as the, the We have a famous movie here in the United States called War Games. This is a movie in the 1980s. It was about a, a hacker, a kid basically, who got access to the US nuclear arsenal. And there's a lot of scenes in the movie where the kid is just typing at his computer and there's gibberish on the computer screen, and that is giving him access to these sensitive systems. Um, You know, this movie was very influential. It actually uh, convinced Ronald Reagan to pay more attention to the security of the nuclear arsenal. It was part of what pushed him to reach these uh, landmark nuclear agreements back in in, in the latter years of the Cold War. But as far as cyber threats today, it's not at all representative of what we have to worry about. Um, We do obviously need to protect our nuclear arsenal from hackers. And a lot of that equipment is actually not digitized anyway because it's so old. But the bigger threat is tricking people not getting past sophisticated computer code. Uh cybersecurity these days is I don't want to I don't want to put real numbers on this, but I'll say it's probably more about human decisions than about how code is written. In terms of how devastating an attack can be, it's about who can you trick and how can you trick them.
0: That's fascinating. Like just yeah. Uh, it yeah, it just seems there's no patch for humans. <laughs> So no, there, there's no patch for humans, and
1: and the big problem with this is that it's counterintuitive. Most people think about cybersecurity as war games; they don't think about it as the Nigerian bank scam. You know, that's a fairly simple scam, but it actually predicted the big problems with uh, technology in the 21st century, which is that human beings are susceptible to being tricked if you use the right words, and if you trick a human being, it doesn't matter how good the technology is. They will type in their password. They will open doors, right? I mean, this is this is the problem is that people who have legitimate access to a system, there's no way to prevent them from doing from undoing the defenses because they're the ones who are supposed to be able to undo the defenses. You want them to, they're authorized to, but what happens when they're doing it for the wrong reason without even knowing it?
0: Yeah, I suppose like with the whole um, the government stuff as well, it doesn't matter um, what if it's a lie. If it's packaged nicely, people are going to be pretty chuffed about it. Yeah, I mean, if, um, if you
1: can appeal to their own biases, you can short circuit a lot of the critical thinking that that you would hope would, would go on in the human brain.
0: Okay, I'm going to end with this question, okay? Um, Eric, you have done some incredible reporting on a multitude of cyber issues. But at this very minute, right now, what issue scares you the most? Are we all doomed? Uh, that's a great question. So I
1: tend to think, uh, after talking to people whose job it is to help protect the electric grid, that that is actually not as big of a threat as uh, some less informed people make it out to be. Um, you know, yes, there are uh, you know foreign hackers in some of these companies right now. They're, they're not in the actual infrastructure to the degree that people think they are. Um, it's a lot harder to do damage there than people assume. So I would I would not put that at the top of my list, but I did want to say that just because I think when you, when you think about hacking, that is one of the most poignant threats that people tend to imagine is the lights going out. And that's certainly possible. We've seen it done in Ukraine, for example. Um, but in, in Western democracies with a, a more sophisticated system, um, it's not as big of a threat as people imagine it to be um i would say really the election security thing is is more concerning to me um and this is a, an indirect threat because the problem really comes with uh, the election process and 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 you don't see the 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 problem at that moment where you see the problem is who gets elected and what do they do so i think the biggest threat right now is you have nefarious foreign actors who see it to their advantage to get certain people elected and if they can do that everything else that comes out of that is not a direct result of a cyber attack per se, but it's an indirect result. I mean, if candidate X is elected and candidate X pursues really bad policies, in a sense, you could say all those bad policies are the the result of a cyber attack. It's not direct. It's not like turning out the lights in a power grid is the result of a cyber attack, but it's indirect. It flows from that one moment where the election was tilted in favor of a particular person. I think that's the thing we've got to worry about. I think you know the United States is... I would say, toward the upper end of resilience in terms of understanding that this is happening and being on guard for it. By no means are we really well prepared, but if I had to rank the countries, I would say we would be towards the top because we had, uh, you know, obviously the, the most famous example of this, but there are a lot of countries, particularly on the periphery of Europe, countries that are, you know, bordering Russia, kind of in that area, that have not experienced the same thing that we experienced at least to that degree. They've had they've had misinformation, but you can imagine that there are countries out there that are susceptible to this because they're not as familiar with it. And that's what we ha- that's what we have to worry about is other countries that we depend on to help stand strong against some of these foreign adversaries, people being elected in those countries who actually want to pursue closer relations with some of those adversaries. That's really the cyber threat, it's this indirect threat, it's this human threat, but it all comes out of
0: cybersecurity. So it's like a domino chain. Yeah,
1: exactly. You could you could consider it a supply chain threat in the sense that um, the hacking is compromising not the policies per se, but the process of electing the person who gets to make the policies.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, I guess it's a mixture of the cyber and people involved. And I guess that's their plan after all, right?
1: Yeah, and every threat now, every every cyber threat is going to involve humans because... The purpose is to is to change how humans experience the world. I mean, there's there's no pure philosophical goal for a cyber attack. Every cyber attack is supposed to help certain people by disadvantaging other people, and so there's always going to be a human element to every cyber attack, whether it's somebody clicking on a bad link or uh, somebody you know paying money to to somebody who doesn't deserve it.
0: I guess it, in a way, it sort of just sounds like a like a Bond villain scheme. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, the thing about cybersecurity is that the more machines we have come into the world, the more networked everything is, the easier it is to do these kinds of attacks that used to be the, the, the stuff of storybooks and movies, because we're, we're building a world that is more connected than we ever expected it to be.
0: Well, as long as we don't build Skynet, I think <laughs> that would be uh, – as long yeah, as long we don't connect it to the nuclear arsenal just yet, we should be fine. Yeah, I hope we won't be doing that. Yeah, that, that wouldn't be the, the best way to end off 2019. Well, um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you, Eric, for joining us today. Sure, I was happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Uh, where can people find you to discuss these matters further?
1: So the best place is on Twitter. Um, that's where I share links to all the stories I've written and, and, and just make other observations about cybersecurity. So my Twitter username is uh, the same as my name, Eric Geller,
0: E-R-I-C-G-E-L-L-E-R. Okay, great. Thank you for coming on. Sure thing. As always, we want to thank both the University of Abedin's List Institute and Societal for helping create this podcast. You can find them both on Twitter at Societal underscore and at uni for logistics as well as our Facebook and LinkedIn pages. To find out more about us via our website, visit www.societal.org.uk Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon.